Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to have you all with us for our Hesburgh lecture this evening. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and along with Professor Karen Eifler, I direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture uh, here at the University of Portland. Um, I'd just like to uh, make a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, uh, we're honored to have with us this evening uh, Dr. Tom Green, the provost of the University of Portland. So let's welcome him to our to our gathering. Um, housekeeping. Uh, PDUs. If you are a uh, K through 12 teacher of any description, whatever and would like to receive free PDUs, professional development units, uh, for attending this or any other Garaventa Center event. Uh, you can, by special arrangement with the School of Education, you can do that by signing up on a sheet outside in the corridor uh, at the end of the evening, and we'll get those off to you uh, in the morning. And there are also uh, some, uh, if you're a student who would, who would like your professor to know that you are here this evening, <laughs> uh, there are sheets out there on the table afterward for you to sign um, as well. As well as uh, calendars of Garaventa Center events. Now, now we're winding down uh, this semester because we don't like to have uh, too many events late in the semester when people are preoccupied with things like uh, term papers and final exams. Um, but if you pick up a copy of the, uh, of the calendar, you can get an idea of the kinds of things that we do. Tonight is pretty representative. Well, today I'm actually wearing two hats uh, because uh, in addition to being uh, uh, in addition to being a co-director of the Garaventa Center, I'm also a chaplain to the Notre Dame Club of Portland. And the Notre Dame Club of Portland are the co-sponsors of our event this evening. And of course, the University of Portland and the University of Notre Dame are both uh, Holy Cross universities founded by my religious order, the Congregation of Holy Cross. So uh, it's wonderful to have so many members of our extended uh, family uh, here with us for this uh, talk this evening. And to, uh, to introduce uh, tonight's speaker, I'd like to introduce to you the president of the Notre Dame Club of Portland. Please welcome Teresa Wiest. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, welcome to everyone. It's great to see such a huge crowd. Um, I have the honor tonight of introducing um, Professor Gabriel Reynolds, who is our speaker. He is a professor of Islamic studies and theology at Notre Dame, whose research is focused above all on the Quran and Muslim-Christian relations. His dissertation on the remarkable Islamic history of Christianity of Abd al-Jabbar won the field prize at Yale. At Notre Dame, Reynolds has organized two international conferences on the Quran and he currently serves as a chair of the executive board of the International Quranic Studies Association. Professor Reynolds is the author of the Quran and its biblical subtext. He has also published The Emergence of Islam, an Introduction to the Quran, The Life of the Prophet Muhammad, or The Classical, History, uh, Classical Period of Islam. 
currently is working on the Quran and the Bible, a biblically-minded commentary on the Quran, which will be released this spring. At Notre Dame, Professor Reynolds teaches classes including Foundations of Theology, Islam and Christian Theology, the Quran and its relation to the Bible, the Holy Land, and Islamic origins. For the year 2016 and 17, Professor Reynolds was a fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Nantes, France. France. Outside of Notre Dame, Professor Reynolds has conducted research and delivered lectures in cities throughout the Middle East, including Cairo, Jerusalem, Beirut, Damascus, Ankara, and Tehran. In his spare time, he follows Notre Dame football, plays soccer, watches science fiction movies, and spends time with his wife and their four kids. Tonight, Professor Reynolds will talk to us about Islam, the Catholic Church, and the future of the world. Please help me give him a warm Portland welcome. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you. I'm honored by your presence here and also by that wonderful introduction. And I'd like to start by thanking um, Teresa and Father Charlie, um, also Sarah Nuxall of the University of Portland, who did a lot of work um, in preparing um, this event. And things were a little crazy today with my travel arrangements, and she was very zen through it all. So I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful for that. Friends, I'd like to give... Um, a very simple presentation this evening, although um, the topic is not very, at least the title is not very humble or modest. Um, but it's going to be a simple introduction to Islam and um, a little bit of reflection also on how, um, what a Catholic perspective on Islam might be. You know, Islam is um, in the news in, um, in many different ways and in the public consciousness in a way that it wasn't. Um, in the past, at least in North America, um, a lot of my focus will be uh, speaking about some theological questions. So how do Muslims look at God? How do Christians look at God? What do we hold in common? But there's going to be a little bit of current events also that we'll, we'll address towards the end. Um, we'll speak a little bit about, about ISIS. Um, and uh, all of it will hopefully give us some sense of a hopeful path forward for Muslim-Christian relations. So that's basically the plan. Hope that's okay. Um, you, you know, I, in preparing this talk, I was thinking um, about simplicity. And, uh, you know, I, I even heard someone give um, a, a, a YouTube presentation in which um, he said, you know, in any sort of talk like this, People, they can't process too much, you know, you can't give information overload. So you really should give just um, three, three main points, have three main points and three main topics. So um, I have seven <laughs> because I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. I couldn't, um, yeah, hold myself back. So uh, we're going to try to do all of this, um, with st starting with a basic sort of reflection on um, how does Islam relate to Christianity in a unique way? So, um, well, why don't we start with um, um, this quotation um, and to think about um, uh, the, the notion of the challenge which Islam poses to Christianity. So this quotation is interesting to me because it's by someone named, named Yusuf Estes, who is a... Um, uh, a Christian who became a Muslim. Um, he's from Texas. He has a southern drawl, um, and, but he speaks. You know, he speaks about Allah with his um, southern southern drawl. And um, it's an interesting quotation because um, he simply says, "Well, 
you know, let's let's address Jesus from um, a Muslim Christ, Muslim perspective and a Christian perspective, and see which perspective makes uh, makes more sense. Now, the fact that he would do this, you know, the fact that he would say. Um, let's sit down and think about Jesus together and compare whether the Christian perspective or the Muslim perspective is more coherent. Um, that fact itself is interesting, right? Because when you think about it, most religions, I mean, if we start thinking about other religions, if we think about, say, I don't know, South Asian religions, like these religions which began there, like Hinduism or Buddhism, you know, they don't have much to say about Jesus. Um, you know, there's some Hindu movements that have a place for Jesus or see a role for Jesus as a guru or a teacher, but you could sort of be a Hindu and deal with Jesus or not. You could sort of take it or leave it, and it's all sort of fine, and everything is okay. Maybe it's similar with Buddhism. You know, Judaism is another case, right, because part of being a Jew is um, the question of who is the Messiah, and, you know, Jews generally, although there's some movements that are a little different, but generally say Messiah hasn't come yet, so Jesus is not the Messiah, you know, but it, it really, even in the Talmud, which is sort of the authoritative, authoritative text after the Bible for Judaism, um, which appears in, you know, with the Babylonian Talmud in the 5th and 6th centuries, even there, Jesus is not spoken about much, so there's not this great concern, but not for Islam. For Islam, Jesus is central. And there's a fundamental claim which Muslims make about Jesus, namely that Christians have misunderstood Jesus and his message, and Muhammad was given revelation by God to correct those misunderstandings. Um, so um, Islam has its own vision of Jesus, and it, not only that, is concerned to challenge um, Christians um, in regard to their view of Jesus. There might be something parallel to this with the way that Christians read the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Because before the Hebrew Scriptures were the Old Testament, they were the Scriptures of Jews, and Christians have particular readings of them, and this would be a whole other lecture, so I should resist the temptation to go too, too far there. But, you know, Christians look at a story, for example, you may know in Genesis 18, there's this great story where these three visitors come and visit Abraham um, and um, his wife Sarah um, prepare, prepares a meal for them. And um, then somehow from the midst of these three visitors, um, the Lord speaks, you know, and Christians have always read this topic and they've been like, oh, yeah. This is a trinity, you know. We, we are right. There it is. And so it's a Christian reading of a Jewish scripture. So that's sort of a challenge. But Islam does something similar um, with, um, with Christianity. Now, um, I, before we go too far, we should just do some basic things about Islam, some basic dates. So Islam appears in the 7th century. Um, Muhammad is born in 570 AD, according to tradition. And the, I don't know how clear it is, but he's born in the city of Mecca, which is in a region called the Hejaz in Western Arabia. But it's only in 610 that he receives his call to prophethood. And the tradition says that he was on a mountain, in a cave on a mountain outside of Mecca. And he heard a voice call out to him and said, saying these words in Arabic, اِقْرَ بِسْمِ رَبَّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانِ مِنْ عَلَقْ Read in the name of your Lord who created, created, created the humans from maybe something, that, that word is difficult, but sticky, sticky clay. It could be a, a, a reference to the creation of, of Adam. Um, so he heard those words, and that was the beginning of divine revelation, and that revelation would continue to come piecemeal. 
in individual sort of blocks of oral revelation between 610 and 632. But along the way, another important date is 622, because that's the date of the migration when he met, went from Mecca to Medina. Um, it wasn't called Medina. The name Medina is actually named after Muhammad. It's, mean, it's short for city of the prophet. And then he returns in 630 to Mecca and conquers the city. It's sort of a triumphant return to his native city. And then he dies two years later in 632. So this gives us some basic chronology. Islam comes um, about six centuries after um, the death of Christ and is shaped by the career of a man named Muhammad in these two cities in Western Arabia. Now, I have this other way of introducing the relationship between Islam and Christianity. So instead of just thinking about a quotation from a, a Christian who became a Muslim, um, we could look at this scene here, so sort of visually think of Islam and Christianity. And, um, you know, you'll recognize this scene, first of all, as the second most important Golden Dome. Um, so, I think that's probably blasphemous, so it's, um, hope this talk is not being recorded, but maybe it is, so for, apologies in case it is, um, yeah, so um, now, and I do like to say, just for the record, that this is of course the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, but um, up until um, the 1950s, and I don't have an old picture here, but up until the 1950s, it was a plain copper greenish roof there on the dome. And it was then that Jordan took over East Jerusalem, the country of Jordan took over East Jerusalem. And uh, King Abdullah, not the current one, but his grandfather, made the decision to put gold plating on the roof. And I just, I don't know this for an, actually as a fact, but my hunch is that he studied Notre Dame's architecture <laughs> and realized what a great idea it would be to have a golden dome. Um, Mary is not on top of there, but um, it's still fine. So anyway, the point of that is not to make smart uh, Alec remarks about Notre Dame, um, but it, really just to point out that there's another dome in this picture. Now, um, so we have these two domes. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, so which is the holiest, I guess, unless you're a Catholic. Um, and then it's Rome, maybe, or Notre Dame. Um, but the holiest spot for Christians, because it's a site both of Golgotha, of the crucifixion, and the tomb of Christ, or the sepulcher, that's where it gets its name. Um, so that's, like, very important. And, um, but the interesting thing about this image are, is that, um, first of all, the, um, the Dome of the Rock sits on what Jews identify as the Temple Mount, the site of Solomon's Temple, and then later also the Second Temple, um, and just just below, you can't really see it, but just sort of down here is the western wall. Um, so it's sort of on top of this holy Jewish site. And then it also so, sort of looks down, um, it really does look down, this image doesn't give a great perspective, on the holiest Christian site, the Holy Sepulchre. And so there's a, there's a visual message here. And actually... Um, there are inscriptions on the interior of the Dome of the Rock which have a written message and among those inscriptions are passages from the Quran which speak about Jesus, some of which we'll see um, this evening. So, I mean, the message is pretty clear, I guess, that you know, um, Islam has come to complete and correct Judaism and Christianity. It's the final of the three Abrahamic um, religions. Well, let's go on um, to topic number two, which is to speak about, um, speak about God. And, I mean, if there's a word to describe the central interest of the Qur'an, it's theology. 
So, um, which is fine with me because that's how I get my um, paycheck. Um, so I like theology, and the Quran likes it as well. Theology, of course, means the study of God, and um, there are uh, wonderful institutions that have departments of theology because that is like um, something special to study God and not simply study religion, right? You're actually involved in the task of faith-seeking understanding. Anyway, um, just uh, a shout-out to Portland. Um, so, right, and then uh, um, in this passage, we see that the Quran has a particular concerned, uh, concern with theology, which is this notion of, of pure monotheism and um, this prohibition of associating anything with God. Now, the word for association, associating something which is not God with God, is shirk, so I've put that up there. Um, and the Qur'an, in fact, in one place, the Qur'an makes um, shirk an unforgivable sin. Right? So that's interesting, too, because in the New Testament, we have an unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In the Qur'an, the, the unforgivable sin is associating something with God. That's in the fourth chapter of the Qur'an. It says, God can forgive anything, but He will not forgive that something be associated with Him. So um, the Quran, in other words, is really concerned with um, the transcendence or the otherness and the uniqueness of God. Now, one way to think about this, but you need some theology, I guess, for it to make sense, is a continuation of an ancient current of theological thinking within the early Christian centuries. You know, I, the, you, there were these heresies that popped up, which were all sort of um, inspired by the main concern of elevating God above worldly or mundane things. Um, you know, Arius was really concerned with this notion that God could become incarnate. He didn't really like that because God should be above that sort of thing. So he said the Logos or the Son of God was created. Um, Nestorius was pretty worried about these things. And so he said we have to divide the human things and the divine things in Christ. So we can't call Mary mother of God because um, God cannot be born. So we have this, these sort of like heresies which insist on um, God's otherness, and I don't mean to call Islam a, a heresy, but I think it emerges from the same theological instinct at least, um, this notion of elevating God, God's transcendence. Um, now, some Muslims have been so, um, there's the quotation from the, of the unforgivable <laughs> sin, have been so concerned about, um, about God's otherness that they said, listen, the Qur'an is such a clear teaching about the transcendence or sublimity of God that we don't recognize in Christian teaching um, their portrayal of God. And uh, this also has to do with the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, and we'll get there as well in just a moment. But just in terms of God, now this image is up there because um, in, um, in Malaysia, beginning in 2007, a law was passed which banned Christian publications from referring to God as Allah. Now, that's a little more complicated, it might seem, at first, because um, Malaysia is not an Arabic-speaking country, but um, they speak Malay, and Malay, because of the arrival of Islam, incorporated many Arabic words, including the word for God. Um, and um, so, uh, Allah is commonly used in Malay, and um, the concern of these Muslim groups was, listen, 
they don't have the same idea um, of God because of their teachings, their Christian teachings, and only the Quran has this sublime teaching about God. And so we don't want them confusing things and calling God Allah. And the course went, the, the case rather went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Muslim groups won. So um, today Christians have to use a special Malay word, at least in print, um, for God and not, um, not Allah. Um, so, um, another way to think about this, though, is to recognize that Christians, too, have been concerned um, with this question of, um, do Muslims and Christians um, worship the same God? And so this is an image of a woman named Larissa Hawkins, who was an associate professor at Wheaton College, which, as you may know, is an evangelical Protestant school um, near Chicago. And um, in, in December 2015, during the season of Advent, um, she um, posted this image of herself in a Muslim headscarf, and um, she um, uh, posted on Facebook, um, be careful with social media, um, I stand in religious solidarity with the Muslims um, because they, like me, uh, a Christian, are people of the book, and as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. Now this got her, um, uh, Professor Hawkins, in hot water at Wheaton, not because she quoted Pope Francis, um, but because of, or, and also not because she wore the headscarf, the Wheaton was clear that wasn't a problem, but this declaration that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Um, and that was considered to be not consistent with, there's like a declaration of faith, of Christian faith you have to sign to teach at Wheaton. They consider that not to be consistent. And it's a long story, again, a little bit like the Malaysia story, but eventually um, the two parted ways and she went off and um, uh, teaches elsewhere. Um, now, so some Christians too would say, um, you know, the Allah, the God of Islam, is a creation of Muhammad's mind and is not the same God as the God um, of the Bible. Now, um, this is not the Catholic perspective, as you may know. Um, the Catholic Church, um, beginning already with Vatican II, with a document known as Lumen Gentium, the Light of Nations. Um, has been pretty clear that Muslims and Christians do worship the same God because there's so much in common with our teaching of God as one creator, judge, um, sanctifier. Um, so there are many aspects of, um, of theological teaching which are in common. And um, in Lumen Gentium, um, there's a pretty clear um, statement which is quoted by Pope Francis in his um, apostolic exhortation known as Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, published in 2013. Um, and there's even a more explicit statement. It's not like an apostolic exhortation or anything, but Pope John Paul, Saint Pope John Paul II, that gets long now, and then people want to add the great too, because then it gets really long. Um, <laughs> but in 1985, he was in Morocco in a football stadium with 80,000 young Moroccans, Muslims, and he there famously declared, we believe in the same God. So um, that's pretty clear um, Catholic teaching in that respect. Well, but um, Islam is not only about God. This is pretty important to point out. Um, sometimes Muslims really emphasize the theology and the monotheism and the transcendence and the sublimity and all that. But Islam, there are two parts of the profession of faith in Islam. Right? The first part is there's no God but God. And the second is that Muhammad is a messenger of God. And you have to have both of them to be a Muslim, right? So what can we say about the prophet of Islam? Well, um, there's a lot to say, and I'd like to keep moving along. Um, I, my goal is to speak 
only for um, 45 minutes, but um, uh, that is a, a struggle for me. So I, I have to be stay on target here. Um, so um, one thing we can say about um, the Prophet of Islam is, is just the, the notion that um, a Prophet in Islam has two roles. Um, the first role of the Prophet is as div- divine messenger. So, for example, when Muhammad heard those first words that I recited in Arabic, he then went down to the people of Mecca and he recited them. So a bit like a tape recorder or a voice memo app, uh, he receives messages from the angel, the angel Gabriel, my favorite angel, um, and he then relays them to his um, people. And his mind has no other role other than to memorize and then um, to recite, right? So that's one role, messenger. But the prophet also has another role, um, which is as exemplar. Um, His example is authoritative. And in fact, it's understood in Islam that the example of the prophet is, um, uh, is, well, the prophet is impeccable and infallible. So does no wrong and says no wrong. So, and this is a grace which God gives prophets, there's a technical word in Arabic for this, um, uh, which is redounds to um, the perfect conduct and um, the perfect um, declarations of a prophet. So we have this quotation here, which says, um, whoever, whoever follows um, Muhammad achieves felicity and blessings. If a generation is devoid of his message, degeneration automatically sets in as prevalent in most societies today. So, you know, I mean, this means in a sense that um, the, the answer to a society's woes is the imitation of Muhammad. Um, you, you might remember there was a time where um, Christians, I, you still see it sometimes, but there was a time where there was this sort of slogan or acronym that was really um, popular, especially among young uh, Christians, which was, WWJD. Does anyone remember WWJD, which was, what did it stand for? Exactly. What would Jesus do? Yeah. So now, when, when Christians say, what would Jesus do? They usually mean, like, how would, how would Jesus act? Would, like, you know, would Jesus forgive this person that just cut me off on the street, you know? Um, would, would Jesus do that? And so, yes, yeah, so I won't get angry or say anything uh, inappropriate. You know, so, um, but usually Christians don't, when they say, what would Jesus do? They usually don't mean like, oh, what would Jesus have for breakfast, right? <laughs> like that's usually, I mean, would he have the Wheaties or the Raisin Bran? Um, you know, they, usually that's not it. Um, and, and, or what would Jesus wear? Now, um, Islam is pretty diverse, so I don't want to simplify things. But, um, nevertheless, um, to simplify things, um, Muslims do have a regard for every aspect of Muhammad's conduct. So, um, in a body of traditions known as a hadith, we read about the statements of Muhammad, but also his actions. And many Muslims seek to imitate his actions as much as possible. Um, so, for example, just to give one one trite example, maybe um, we have a hadith or a tradition according to which his beloved wife Aisha said. Um, every, every morning Muhammad would put on his right shoe before his left shoe. And some Muslims would say, that's not just interesting, that's authoritative. So I should put my right shoe on before my left shoe. Other things like Muhammad liked um, perfume, he did not like garlic. Um, and these are things which 
are, are not necessarily considered required by Islamic law, but because Muhammad um, ha, um, acted in this way or had certain predilections, um, they're, they're sought to be imitated by others. So this is one thing to know about Muhammad in Islam. He's not only a messenger, he's also an exemplar, messenger and exemplar. Um, and in fact, there are two sources of revelation in Islam which correspond to those two roles. The first source of revelation is the Qur'an, and the second are the Hadith. Right? So, also in Christian tradition, at least in Catholic tradition, we have two sources of revelation, um, at least two records of revelation in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Um, Jews, too, they have the Bible and the Talmud, sort of all, uh, parallel we have in the three, um, three traditions. Now, the other thing to note, I think, about Muhammad is that... Um, We'll get back to that. Is that Muhammad is considered to be um, the greatest prophet and the last prophet. Um, so he has a certain stand. Now the Quran says in a couple of places, we make no distinction between the prophets. And yet um, Islamic tradition has traditionally uh, made a distinction and elevated Muhammad behind or beyond other prophets. Now this is all in Arabic and very small. So... Um, uh, I don't expect you to read it, but you can see that it's a tree with writing there, and um, you can guess that that, I think there's a close-up there, yeah, that image there in Arabic is nice, calligraphy, Muhammad. So you have all of the different prophets um, who sort of, and these are the prophets of Israel who go off in this direction, but all by himself, um, emanating light is Muhammad. So Muhammad has a place by himself. Now, um, that's in part because he's considered to be the greatest prophet. And one way that Muslims have for articulating this is that, um, you know, Moses was a prophet, and he had this thing where he was very sort of legalistic and stern um, and focused on this world and with like dietary regulations, um, things like that. And then Jesus was a prophet, and he was um, filled with grace and love, um, but a little bit too much grace and love. And he was focused on the other world. He was an ascetic. He was a wisdom figure. But he, wasn't, he didn't set up a state. He never even got married. And so he wasn't like a practical sort of type. And then Muhammad came and he was the perfect um, middle between those two extremes. And um, he represented this world and the next world. Um, uh, worldly matters and otherworldly matters. Now, um, another way that um, uh, to express the place of um, Muhammad and Islamic thinking is um, a story that he had a journey, a night journey, um, a journey by night in which he traveled from his native city of Mecca um, on a miraculous beast, which you see there, who even gets a name in Islamic tradition. His name is Burak. And um, he traveled to the city of Jerusalem, and then from the city of Jerusalem, he ascended into heaven. And um, Muslims have different interpretations of this event, um, but um, he, uh, when he went into heaven, he met different figures. In the first la level of heaven, he met Adam. On the second level, Jesus and John. So Jesus was pretty far down, it's interesting. And then Joseph on the third level, and he goes up and up. And then um, finally, on the seventh level, he met Abraham. And the story goes, uh, this, we could speak about this more maybe during the question and answer, but the story goes that um, when he saw Abraham and he came back and met his companions, he said, 
there I saw Abraham, and never have I seen a man who looks so much like myself. Um, so that Abrahamic image is very important. But after seeing Abraham, according to certain traditions, he proceeded to the very throne of God. He was the only prophet allowed to enter into the divine presence. Um, so he's the last prophet and he's the greatest um, prophet. Well, but Jesus is also um, a prophet. Um, and in fact, Islamic tradition says he's a prophet immediately before Muhammad. By the way, he's also the prophet, in a sense, immediately after Muhammad. Because according to Islamic tradition, I know I just said Muhammad is the last prophet. So you're like, what's going on? But according to Islamic tradition, Jesus did not die. And we'll get to this again. But he, he rose body and soul to heaven because God plans to send him down again to earth in the end times. And so Jesus actually comes before and after Muhammad. But for all intents and purposes, Muhammad is the last um, prophet. So um, now the thing about Jesus is he represents the theological righteousness um, of, of the Qur'an. Um, so he, um, we, in this statement here, we have Jesus actually speaking. We don't have a lot of Jesus' statements. And in fact, almost everything he says in the New Testament is not found in the Qur'an. Like none of the parables, none of the discourses, none of like the, the long stuff in the Gospel of John where he goes on about bread of life and um, true vine and all of these things. None of that um, is found in um, the Qur'an, but he does say this, which is not found in the New Testament, um, it, and it's the theological righteousness. In fact, in this statement, which begins by apparently threatening um, uh, or declaring that Christians are unbelievers for saying that God is Christ, notice the order there is sort of interesting, right? Not Christ is God, God is Christ. Um, and then it goes on to have Jesus sort of remind Christians of what they've forgotten about him. God is my Lord and your Lord. And then at the end it says, um, whoever associates, there's that word again, shirk, whoever associates something with God, um, his refuge is the fire. So um, Jesus sort of plays the role of spokesman of Quranic theology who reprimands Christians for not being totally faithful um, to that um, theology. Um, now, um, Jesus also performs um, miracles in um, the Quran as he does in the Bible. And some of the biblical miracles are there, like healing the blind and the lepers, and even raising the dead. At the end of this quotation are some what people like to call clairvoyant miracles, where he knows things that he shouldn't know, like what you've been eating. Those we don't have um, in the New Testament, but, but they're reflected in some apocryphal gospels. Um, you, there's this really neat miracle at the very beginning there. You know, what does Jesus do? He makes um, a bird from clay, and then he breathes into it, and it becomes a bird. And um, that's really neat because it reflects something found in an apocryphal gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, which redounds to his divinity, because that's what God does with Adam, right? He forms Adam with clay and breathes into the clay and Adam comes alive in the book of Genesis. So Jesus does that with a bird. But here in the Quran, notice what the Quran adds. The Quran says he did this by permission of Allah, right? And so um, the Quran is pretty clear 
that he didn't do it of his own power. He didn't have divine power within him. God had to grant him um, permission. Now, um, I've already mentioned that the Quran um, doesn't um, seem to accept the crucifixion. It's actually not 100% clear, but the standard Islamic interpretation is to reject the crucifixion. So we have this neat book by a South African um, Muslim evangelist with the snappy title, Crucifixion or Crucifixion. Um, and so um, the Islamic perspective on the crucifixion, um, the fact that it's ambiguous tells us something new about Jesus in the Quran, namely that even though he's called Christ, that title does not redound to any salvific or redemptive role he plays. So the crucifixion is alluded to, but there's no commentary on its importance. So we can say sort of confidently, it's what Jesus says and not what Jesus does that matters. Now, um, the last thing to say maybe is that, um, um, what does this mean for the Muslim view of the Bible? And I just do this very quickly, then we'll get on to part two of the talk. And you're like, part two, we've only done part one? <laughs> Sorry. Um, there's only, I mean, I gave the seven divisions, right? So parts are like the larger categories into which those divisions. Don't worry, there's only two parts. Um, so, yeah, just to say something about the Bible, right? If Islam is such a different view on Jesus, even with the crucifixion, you know, that's a big difference. Um, so what does that mean for the Bible? And just to affirm that as a rule, Muslims do not consider the Bible to be authentic or authoritative scripture. Doesn't mean Muslims won't read the Bible. I was in a taxi cab once in Lebanon and with a Muslim cab driver, and um, he had the Quran on the dashboard, you know, and he sort of saw that I was eyeing it, and he was like, hey, I want you to do something. Open the glove compartment. And I opened the glove compartment. What was there? The Bible. He's like, I want you to know I read both. <laughs> so um, he was very proud of that. So Muslims do read the Bible, of course, but sort of um, in a doc doctrinal way, um, uh, the Bible is not considered to be authentic scripture. In fact, many Muslims would hold that it's been falsified, so it doesn't reflect the pure teaching of Moses or of Jesus. Okay, so um, all of that was background on Islam, and then we can transition to thinking about Islam today. Um, this is the future of the world um, part. Um, and we're going to start by a section on Islamic law, and what I want to say about um, Islamic law is basically to speak about two aspects. One is that um, Muslims consider it to be natural, and the other is that Muslims consider it to be universal or global. And this quotation reflects that second aspect, right? Because here we have a famous um, radical Muslim who was executed by Abdel Nasser in Egypt, was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, Sayyid Qutb, also a major intellectual. Um, he writes, the Islamic society is that which follows Islam in belief in ways of worship. So a Christian, thinking about Christianity, would say, yep, that's basically right, and that's basically it. But the Muslim doesn't stop, stop there. The Muslim says, in law, in organization, in morals, and in manners, right? So Islam covers all things. My Quran teacher in Beirut used to say, um, here's the thing about the difference between Islam and Christianity. In Christianity, you have like an hour once a week, like Christianity is nice, it teaches you to love people and God is love and blah, blah, blah. Like you have all that stuff, but you basically have an hour a week that you give to God. 
And we Muslims give 24 hours of every day to God. Everything we think about is informed by our notion of what has been permitted or forbidden by God. Um, what is halal or haram, to use the Arabic terms. So not only spiritual things in prayer, but every aspect of life um, is shaped by Islamic law. Um, and so this leads to this, this slogan that you find, this is actually the slogan of the Muslim Brotherhood, to which Sayyid um, Qutb um, uh, belonged, um, which is, Islam is the solution. Islam huwal hal in Arabic. Yeah. So um, Islam covers every aspect of life. But then as we said, there's this other aspect of Islamic law, which is this belief of Muslims that um, the Islamic law is natural. And what is meant by natural is explained maybe by this tradition that Muslims tell according to which every child is born a Muslim. Um, this is the Prophet Muhammad, it's actually a hadith. Prophet Muhammad is said to have declared, every child is born a Muslim. It's his parents who turn him into a Jew or a Christian or a Zoroastrian. So Islam, by this way of thinking, is the religion into which you're born. And uh, there's this notion that um, people should just um, naturally, um, there's even a word which is called fitra, which is your natural instinct to be Muslim. And so it's only when people are in line with that natural instinct that they can find well-being and flourishing. It's only when societies are in line with Islamic law that they, um, they too can um, flourish. Um, and this is, by the way, what's meant by the word sharia. Um, you may know, heard this word before, sharia. So some people say Islamic law. Yeah, it is Islamic law, um, but it's also um, universal. So it's more than just what we think of law. Because usually law can have a law book, you put it on your shelf, um, and stuff. So, but Islamic law, the notion of sharia is the universal divine will. Um, so sharia cannot be contained in a book. It's the totality of God's will for humanity, past, present, and future. And humans, through jurisprudence, seek to understand that will. Does that make sense? So um, sharia is this sort of ideal theoretical notion of everything that God wills for humanity. right? And the universality um, is key. Um, now, for some Muslims, and again, we don't want to be simplistic or exaggerate, there are a variety of Muslims, but for some Muslims, if God has a will for everything, well, that means we should organize our societies based on Islamic law. Why have humans make things up um, as they go along when God has a will for everything? And I think the reasoning is actually sort of coherent, the way it plays out in real life, um, in places like one example I'll, I'll give or two, Iran and Pakistan is another story but the reasoning you could sort of follow it right and so I just wanted to give these two examples I know they're too small so I'll just read them but these are from um, two different countries one Shiite Iran and one um, Sunni Pakistan and it's the, basically the opening sections of their constitutions and they're just interesting because they both have the word sovereignty there Right, so the Iranian constitution speaks of um, that the state should be based on the exclusive sovereignty of God. And so too, the preamble of the Pakistani constitution, whereas sovereignty over the entire universe belongs to Almighty God alone. Um, so, uh, so there's this notion that um, God, God should rule. 
Now, um, what does this mean then for non-Muslims, for Christians in an Islamic state? That's a whole other lecture as well. Um, but um, it's a problem, right? It's a problem because the idea is that the whole society should be submissive to God and His law. So what do you do when you have people like Christians who don't even recognize the law? Um, and uh, Islamic um, jurisprudence worked out a solution, which is what you can give a certain status to Jews and Christians, and the word is dhimmi for this status, where they have certain restrictions, but they're allowed to practice their religion um, and to continue living in an Islamic state. In the medieval period, you know, when you compare it, it seems like a reasonable status, a reasonable solution. There were still outbreaks of violence and stuff and things like that. But, in, of course, in the 21st century, where our thinking is shaped by notions of citizenship, um, it's, not, it's not very satisfying. Um, I would just add that um, it's, the working out of Islamic law is very complicated. Um, there is no magisterium. You know, Catholics complain sometimes about the magisterium and like this hierarchical body that is passing down these rules and establishing um, doctrine and things. But it's pretty good to have a magisterium from this perspective, at least, because at least you have like a catechism you can hold in your hands and you're like, or canon law, and you're like, here's our teaching, and you can, you know, do with it what you will. But it, it's there, you know, it's coherent. In Islam, there's no such thing as a magisterium, and so you have different jurisprudence from different tendencies. Even within Sunnism, you have many, many currents and streams of thought. Um, even within one movement in Sunnism, like Salafism, you have many streams of thought. And so the working out of Islamic law is actually quite complicated, and, and you have a whole spectrum. Again, it's important to emphasize the diversity. Okay, well, we can move on to Islamic State. Um, you know, I... Um, um, I just mentioned this word Salafism, and that's the way to think, uh, to begin speaking about the Islamic um, State and ISIS, and um, this, so this is part six, right? So we're doing good. Um, not really. Oh, it's eight. Okay, this is going to be quick. So um, this is um, the Islamic State. Yeah, um, so Salafism is a movement within Sunnism. Um, which is shaped by a fundamental idea that the first three generations of Muslims, this is based on a hadith, it doesn't come from nowhere, it's not a random choice, the first three generations of Muslims um, were righteous, and we should seek to recreate um, the state that they, um, that they established in early um, Islam. Now, Salafis are of all types. There are Salafis in the United States who um, participate in the democratic process and are good citizens and so th those would be um, quietist Salafists. And then um, there are Salafists who sometimes are called activist Salafists, who don't resist um, violently non-Islamic states, um, but through different sorts of, um, of activism, um, they seek to upend the state. They don't want the state to continue in a democratic form. They're, they want to work towards a Sharia-based state. And then you have a third movement within Salafism, um, which is sometimes called rejectionist, or even better, Salafi jihadi, um, who believe in the violent establishment of the Islamic order, and which <laughs> condone with certain principles, and this can get really complicated, even violence against civilians, um, and in a special way, violence against um, Christians, whom they consider to be guilty of a larger war against Islam by association with the West. And there's a principle in Islamic jurisprudence 
known as qisas, which means basically retribution, and this is used to justify um, attacks against Christians in places like um, Syria and Iraq um, and um, even Libya, which we'll get to in a moment. So um, that, that's the basic um, step to understanding um, um, ISIS. Um, they work, again, from this idea which we've already been introduced to, which is, should you rule by the law of Allah or the laws of men? Um, and they take it to an extreme, rejecting um, democracy. Um, and, of course, they established a, a caliphate, um, which is now in pieces um, in 2014, in the summer of 2014, and invited all Muslims in the entire world to emigrate and join um, their movement. Um, so um, we, we can now speak of different paths of Islam and Islamic thinking. Um, there are many Muslims committed to coexistence, and I've just chosen um, one figure who's active in dialogue, so just an image of the Turkish um, journalist and columnist for the New York Times, Mustafa Akyul, um, who um, has written a book, Islam Without Extremes. Um, so there are many Muslim figures, like in, I would say the majority of Muslims, who understand, uh, are eager simply for coexistence and focus on the spiritual aspects of Islam. Um, but then you have this other instinct uh, in the heart of Islam, which is this instinct to see Islam triumph. And this shouldn't seem strange to us either, because there are plenty of Christians who are eager to have Christianity triumph, and you know um, the missions which spread Christianity to Africa and Asia and other parts were shaped by this notion of fulfilling the Great Commission and spreading Christianity. Um, but, so there are two ways of this for Muslims. One is da'wah, which means evangelism or missions. And there's a famous televangelist who does da'wah. His name is Zakir Nayak. He's uh, an Indian. Um, and the other is jihad. And so there we have Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Okay, I mean, uh, as you know, ISIS, um, they, this symbol which looks like a U with a dot, which is actually, anyone know what Arabic letter it is? Yeah, it's, a, it's an N, right, great, yeah, it's a noon in Arabic, it stands for Nasara, which means Christians, and it was, um, uh, was spray painted on the homes of Christians in summer 2014 when ISIS took over Mosul, um, Iraq, um, and Christians all fled from the regions of ISIS, and um, even the State Department under the Obama administration um, uh, described what happened to Christians under ISIS as genocide, and in fact, Whole populations of Christianity have been killed, women sometimes, in some cases, enslaved, um, and um, large areas of northern Iraq and northeastern Syria, which were once Christian, are no longer Christian at all. Um, there was also the story of the Coptic martyrs of Libya. Um, I just like this slide because it was a beautiful icon that was done. They were victims of ISIS that shows them receiving their crowns of glory. So let's just move on then and get to the conclusion. Um, so we are almost there, I promise. Um, now, um, it's important maybe to add just for a second because we've done ISIS that um, Christians are not only persecuted in the Islamic world, the persecution of Christians takes place also in places like China and India from Hindu nationalist groups and things. So um, the situation of Christians around the world is um, complicated and ISIS has not only persecuted Christians, but also other groups, including Yazidis, this religious group called Yazidis, where in the area of Sinjar in Iraq, um, thousands of women were um, enslaved. 
Um, and um, also um, Shiites, there's very violent um, polemics in um, Salafi jihadism against Shiism, and there's been horrible attacks, especially during the pilgrimages that Shiites in Iraq take to places like Karbala and Najaf. Um, in one attack, 80 people died in a restaurant in, in um, Iraq. So, um, but still, there are issues here that the Catholic Church has to think about in terms of the situation of Christians um, in the Islamic world. And, you know, there have been ISIS, we've mentioned ISIS, but there's also Boko Haram was this terrible incident where 276 um, overwhelmingly Christian schoolgirls um, were um, kidnapped by Boko Haram and basically sold as um, sex slaves um, in Western um, Africa. There was the attack in Kenya um, in a Christian college where 148 people were killed during a prayer service, etc., etc. So, okay, that's enough depressing um, news. Um, how should the church respond? So, conclusion. Number one, the church, um, the church should... Um, respond with pastoral care for Christians in the Islamic world. And it's too easy, I think, for um, Christians in the West who are able to live out their lives of faith um, without any serious obstacle um, to forget that in places like Iraq and Syria, um, but also places increasingly like Pakistan, Indonesia, um, and also in certain places in Africa, um, it can be dangerous for Christians simply to go um, to go to Mass. Um, so there, the, the Church needs to continue to be an advocate for freedom of religion, as I think it has been under um, Pope Francis. Um, and it needs to advocate also for freedom of religion for all peoples and to advocate this notion of um, it, freedom of religion as a human um, right. And there are some voices in academia, at least, who contend that freedom of religion is a Western creation and is a sort of um, imperialistic notion that is used to apply pressure on non-Western nations, and I think the Church has to be articulate in explaining this as a natural um, human right, which is it's it's actually um, there in a Vatican II document called Dignitatis Humanae. Um, so we could speak more about that. Um, the Church has been active under Pope Francis in helping certain cases, maybe most famously Maryam Ibrahim. Um, I won't go into her story um, at length, but, you know, one situation the church should be concerned about are Christians from a Muslim background. And this is an interesting case because there's a direct confrontation with Islamic law. Islamic law is, um, and again, not all Muslims apply this, but uh, at least in theory, Islamic law is that you cannot convert from Islam to another religion. If you do, you could be, um, in fact, executed, tried and executed. And Miriam Ibrahim was a Sudanese woman who was tried for apostasy, for leaving Islam, and through the work of the Catholic Church, basically, she and her husband were rescued from Sudan, and that's a nice image. Um, that baby of hers was born in prison while she was awaiting execution. She, if you're wondering, are there still saints, you know, in, in the 21st century, Maryam Ibrahim is um, a good answer to that question. Now, but I think um, the Church also has a special role in defending the rights also of Muslims in the Western world. So that would be the second, um, uh, the second task of where we go from here. Um, we have, I think, as Catholics, 
an ability to appreciate the religious devotion of Muslims. You know, the fact that not, not all Muslim women put on the headscarf and women without the headscarf are not less Muslim than women with the headscarf, but that some women choose to put on the headscarf in a context where they know every day they'll get some strange looks and things, that shows the, um, their devotion to their faith, and there's something beautiful about that. Um, the Muslim fast during Ramadan, you know, we're almost, we've almost made it to the end of Lent, um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, like, our Lenten fast... It's not super rigorous, like church asks us to give up meat once a week, you know. Meanwhile, there are vegans out there who like are like, ha, 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 you know, for meat once a week. And you can still eat fish, you know. That, what could be wrong with that, you know. And Muslims, of course, don't eat at all during sunlight hours or drink during the fast of Ramadan. So we can admire these things and see similar things in our tradition. And there's just a simple lesson there for Muslims, which is obedience to God, even when you don't fully understand. Why should I fast, not eat or drink anything with the suffering that brings on? And people could get reasons for, oh, it's good for you, it's good for your body, it's good for your discipline. But the real reason is because God told you to do so. You know, there's a saying um, in the Psalms, which is, um, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. And um, that's something that I think, at least in, in part, we've lost in um, at least the Western Catholic context, this notion of obedience to God. And then finally, I'd just like to conclude by noting um, this statement that Muslims and Christians have something in common, which is the notion of, of mercy, um, which is central to um, Islam. We've even seen that a name for God in Islam is the merciful, Ar-Rahman. And so in the bull, the papal bull, which established the year of mercy, Misericordiae Vultus, um, Pope Francis actually went out of his way to comment about Islam that among the privileged names that Islam attributes to the Creator are merciful and kind. So we don't only have a God in common, we have a merciful God in common. Thank you. Professor Reynolds said he'd be happy to field some questions, so please. Yes, sir. The story about Muhammad ascending to uh, heaven, Muhammad's dead. What is the source of that story? Oh, no, he's still alive. Yeah, right, it's sort of this miraculous uh, ascension story, um, which could be compared, I guess, maybe to like um, Elijah going up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Um, there are some other stories about like Enoch, which are similar. So he's still alive. Yeah. Also, um, he's describing heaven. Exactly. He comes back to his companions and describes his experience. Oh. Yeah. What's the difference between the Shiites and the other Sunnis? Sunnis. Yeah, that's a big one. Wow. <laughs> so I mean, we could focus on two things. The first thing is the notion of leadership in the Islamic community and who was the rightful successor of Muhammad. Um, and so um, Sunnis hold that um, the community correctly chose Muhammad's close friend, his name was Abu Bakr, to be the leader after him. Um, and Shiites hold that Muhammad actually had designated his cousin and his son-in-law, whose name was Ali, um, to be the leader after him. And in fact, historically, it was Abu Bakr. So, Shiites felt that something went wrong there when Abu Bakr and not Ali was chosen. So that's sort of 
that's sort of one dimension. But there's another dimension which um, is that Shiites hold that um, not only Ali, but a series of 12 figures after Muhammad, known as Imams, um, were given a special role by God in the history of um, humanity, of salvation, and that those Imams, um, although they're not called prophets, they have some of the gifts of prophets, they were also infallible and impeccable, and they can relate hadith, um, which can provide new traditions that a Sunni wouldn't know about. So the first is leadership, and the second is that whole teaching of the Imams, which Sunnis do not share with Shia. Yes, sir. Uh, growing up a Catholic, I can always remember my parents saying, John, among other things, you, you always have a free will. Yeah. It's, it's your option. You're the master of your faith, captain of your soul. So if I were, if I had been born in Saudi Arabia, what would my parents be telling me that would either contraindicate that or affirm that? Yeah, great question, and I like how you articulate it. Thank you. Um, so here we actually have a, a third difference between Sunnis and Shiites. Um, the Shiite teaching is pretty clearly for free will, um, and that historically is related to a school of Sunni theology. I know this is getting complicated which disappeared. So the, the school that won in Sunni theology is um, a school that holds basically for determination of acts or predestination. Um, and the, I would say that generally the Quran, I mean the Quran speaks a lot about um, whomever God guides um, will be in a right path and whoever God leads astray will be lost. And so there's a lot of um, verses that speak speak to that and that shaped theological thinking towards determination. Now, um, they recognize the problem with that view in terms of Muslim theologians, in terms of, well, what does that make divine judgment about? Because if God has compelled you to do something, how can he condemn you for that? And so they would say there's actually a way in which humans participate in that act of determination, that you sort of um, by, by acting out what's been determined for you, um, you own those acts, and you can be judged for them. And they would say, if you don't fully understand it, um, it's because it sort of surpasses um, rational um, capacity. Yeah. So basically, Sunnis are determinists, and Shiites believe in free will. Yeah. Centuries ago, they were referred to Mohammedans instead of Muslims. Is that a self-reference and a self-change, or is that from the outside? Exactly. It was from the outside. So that was a classification by Western scholars or Orientalists who, um, you know, were just following the way that religions tend to be described by their leader. I mean, at least in the cases of Buddhism and Christianity. Um, so they, uh, they assigned this notion of Mohammedans. Um, and Muslims have, you know, corrected them saying, no, um, the, the Quran itself refers to us as Muslimun, which is as the Arabic form for Muslims, and so um, that's the proper designation for the religion. Yes? Um, I was going to say first, I just wanted to say, my son was one of your students a couple of years ago, and he speaks really highly of you. Pretty much nobody else in Notre Dame. I don't know what you said, but you got him interested. I have sort of two related questions. One is, um, is there any, you sort of touched on this, but is there any specific justification in the Quran for violent jihad? And then, secondly, you, you talked about um, contemporary Muslim sort of, uh, you know, you're talking about coexistence, but they, are there any that are specifically, you know, denouncing 
the, the violence you had in public? Great, yeah, very important question. So um, there is jihad in the Quran. Um, jihad is um, often spoken about being performed in the path of God. Um, the Quran also uses another word, which is qital, um, which means fighting. So they're both there, which suggests that jihad, even though the word strictly speaking means striving, so you could, you could do jihad in an intellectual enterprise or a moral or ethical enterprise, but the way it's used in parallel to qital suggests that it really means warfare. So yeah, you do have um, there, but um, it's not clear that the passages on fighting, it's really not clear that they endorse some sort of eternal struggle, right? So um, I think a very simple reading of the text would say, okay, there was a struggle going on in Muhammad's days, and God was encouraging, if you take a theological view, was encouraging his community to fight, but that doesn't mean in the 21st century, um, almost 1,500 years later, that I'm supposed to fight too, that jump to not only was it around the 7th century, but it should be around forever, is something that's made by Salafis, basically. And they rely on certain hadith for that teaching. Um, and that's pretty complicated because there are all sorts of hadith which say the contrary, which um, encourage coexistence and, um, and hospitality and charity to neighbor. So you have to really construct the whole theory of jihad, which is exactly what Salafis do. And yes, there are many voices that um, you know are passionately opposed to um, these Salafi groups. In fact, um, you know many of these um, voices, um, people like Hamza Yusuf, who is the president of Zaytuna College, an Islamic college in California, um, even a Salafi, but a quietist, so a peace-loving um, Salafi such as Yasser Qadi, um, who teaches at Rhodes College in, I think, in Tennessee. Um, they're condemned by ISIS as apostates for teaching a peaceful version of Islam. Um, they both appear in, in the magazine of ISIS as apostates who are to be, whose blood is listed. You know? So there are, there are even, even Salafis speak out against this violent uh, perspective. So, yeah. um, I understand that the Quran uses the word in the Quran, and uh, probably more so than even in the Bible. That's right, there are. Yeah, and there's a whole chapter named after Mary, um, which is chapter 19, or Surah 19 in the Quran. Um, so, I mean, um, and then there are other passages which seem to identify Mary and Jesus as being special miracles, probably connected to the virgin birth. Um, but Mary is also listed as a model for all women in Quran 66 in another surah. So there's great um, veneration for Mary. And just one anecdote, in, in Lebanon actually, the, the Feast of the Annunciation on March 25th is officially a jointly Muslim-Christian holiday. In Lebanon all the holidays are either Muslim or Christian and there's the same amount, but then they added one which is joint, which is the Feast of the Annunciation. So I think she is a figure who can bring Muslims and Christians together. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. As a Muslim who lived in Oregon for 45 years, I thank you very much. That's the misconception about Muslim. And for you to take the time to educate people over here, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm a pilot too. 
I was in West Africa about three months ago. There was a Nigerian bathtub. And he was saying a lot of stuff about Muslims. So they wanted to go kill him. But guess what happened? Like he said, coexistence. Most of the younger generation went to Christian schools. They are friends. Those were the people that stood up. No, this guy doesn't speak for all the Christians. So, in fact, if I want to say something to anybody, if you are somebody saying something about Christians or this, it's just only one person. There are billions of Muslims. You know, believe, like you said, in Jesus Christ. Like you, said, you talked about Mary, the Muslim, we call him Maryam. Thank you very much for coming over here, and may God bless you. Thank you. God bless you, too. Perhaps one more question? Yes, ma'am. Um, I still don't understand the, the Islamic view of the crucifixion. Do they actually believe that Christ was crucified? I've also heard that that, that didn't happen, and that he yeah. was yeah. yeah. So the verse says, there's just one verse on the crucifixion, and it says uh, in Arabic, قَوْلِهَمْ قَتَلْنَا الْمَسِيحَ عِيسَ بِنْ مَرْيَمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهُ وَمَا قَتَلُوهُ وَمَا سَلَبُوهُ Which means, in their statement, um, we have killed Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God, but they didn't kill him, and they didn't crucify him. Now, just, I just quote the verse because it's interesting. It doesn't say he wasn't killed and he wasn't crucified. Some people have interpreted that verse to, to mean that um, actually God was behind the crucifixion. Because the Quran insists that God brings life and brings death. He's in, in charge of life and death. So that's one interpretation. But the standard, the standard view, and it, it has to do with the belief that Jesus will return. The standard view is that Jesus was taken up... Um, body and soul, and that someone else was crucified in his place. But it's, it's one, of, one of those questions where Muslims would say, it's not a central question for the faith, there are differences of opinion, and it's fine. There's a nice saying that Muslims have when they have these questions, they say, and God knows best. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Professor Reynolds. This is just a small token from Portland for you. Thank you. Very short visit. This is fascinating, and yeah, I hope um, everyone enjoyed the lecture as much as I did, and uh, we we really enjoyed having you here. Thank you. Um, we uh, encourage you all to get involved with other events through the Notre Dame Club. We have a lot coming up, so just go to our website and check it out. So, and thank you to the Garaventus Center for hosting as well. Thanks everyone for coming.